This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I just returned home from New York, where I was privileged to be invited onto the Wilds cast. It's a podcast hosted by Rabbi Mark Wilds of the Manhattan Jewish Experience, MJE. And we had what I think was a very interesting conversation where we touched on many important issues, so much so that I decided to post it here on our episode of The Next Stage this week. Uh, If you listen carefully, I think you'll hear a lot of the tension that exists between the modern Orthodox Torah of the United States versus the Torah of Eretz Yisrael. In any case, I had a great time hashing these issues out with Rabbi Wilds, you know, and I think MJE does incredible work. And if you're a Jewish young professional in the New York area, I urge you to check them out. Um, also, for those of you who, who don't already know, uh, we're beginning the first of our new online courses today. The first one is National Crises and Wars in the Book of Bamidbar, uh, taught by me. If you enjoyed my podcasts on Sefer Breshit and Sefer Shmot, uh, based on the teachings of Manitou, Rav Yudash Genazi, then I urge you to come and learn Sefer Bamidbar with me online, week by week, Parsha by Parsha, um, really through the same lens as those podcasts on Breshit and Shmot. Uh, if you're interested, you can register for the course at visionmovement.utobo.com. And while you're over there, you can check out some of our other new courses. And as always, if you're interested in supporting this podcast or any of our other projects, I urge you to go to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and click donate on the menu bar up top. Keep in mind, this show is completely listener funded. We don't want that to change and we greatly appreciate your support. If you're interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 77. And now without further ado, here is the conversation that I had this week with Rabbi Mark Wilds from MJE. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Today I had the privilege of sitting down with Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen. He is someone that has spent years living together and speaking with his Palestinian neighbors. And he's got a bold proposal as to how to finally solve the current conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. You may not agree with everything. I questioned him and I continue to question his approach, but this is something really, really worth listening to because we all know that the status quo ain't working. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Huda Hakohen. Okay, welcome to the Wildscast. I am joined by Rav Yehuda HaKohen, who is a thought leader in Israel, advocating a very, very important message that I thought was uh, significant for our listeners on the Wildcast. Welcome, Rav Yehuda HaKohen. It's an honor and a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. The honor is mine. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little, um, let's get right to it. What are okay. your goals? What are your goals and aspirations? I know you're part of this vision movement, and I know that mm-hmm. you... Uh, have conducted lots of conversations uh, with your Palestinian neighbors. You live mm-hmm. in uh, an area which is largely Arab and Jewish, um, and you've made some headway with your neighbors. Uh, but sure. what, what what are the goals and aspirations okay. um, of the participants in this current chapter of Jewish history that you are trying to wow. lead? 
So I, I want to be very clear that um, and, and honest up front that everything that I'm doing, and I think most of us at the Vision Movement are doing, is really being a, driven by a sense of actively participating in Jewish history, of being characters in Israel's story, in this unique chapter of Israel's story, which I personally see as one of the most amazing and climactic chapters of our story. Uh, and we're really coming into this in the wake of the successes of the Zionist movement, right? The Zionist movement mm -hmm. was incredibly successful at bringing a broken and scattered people back to life in their ancient land with their ancient language. And uh, but but I think Zionism as a unique stage of Jewish liberation um, has ended, and the next generation needs a new Jewish liberation movement that can come in the wake of Zionism. Um, so in order to be able to advance us forward, to be able to advance our aspirations forward, our story forward. And uh, at the Vision Movement, we run a lot of programs. Uh, some of them are in person, many are online. Um, anybody wants to check them out can go to visionmovement.org. Um, and these programs are really geared towards training university students and young professionals to really um, formulate their own positions and ideological tendencies, their own unique Jewish liberation movement relevant to this chapter of Jewish history, mm -hmm. um, to figure out what are the objectives of Jewish history now after the successes of Zionism. In fact, how can we use the conditions created by Zionism success to be able to go and achieve, achieve some of the next aspirations of our prophets and sages. So some of us have come to the conclusion, you know, that mm -hmm. we leave a lot of space for people to come to their own conclusions because, you know, just like Zionism had multiple ideological tendencies. And I think the friction between those rival Zionist tendencies actually propelled us forward a century ago. You know, so to today in a post-Zionist world, I think that, you know, empowering many young Jews to really uh, formulate their own Jewish liberation movement, uh, I think will lead to a situation where we have many different uh, ideological tendencies in competition with each other um, and pushing each other forward uh, as a result. So in, for my own conclusions, one of them is reconciliation with the Palestinians. I do see that as an objective of Jewish history right now. I'm somebody who spent a lot of my adult life um, trying to fight against a two-state solution, whether it's building new Jewish communities on various mountaintops in the West Bank, in, in the Samaria and Judea regions, um, whether it's building new Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. Um, but I realized at a certain point uh, a few things. Number one, that the Palestinian story is a real story that we have to deal with. And I think Hashem put them in our land on purpose. Like, I think that there, there are people we need to um, relate to, not just as like a, an unwanted enemy population, uh, but maybe there's something else going on there that the Kadosh Baruch Hu wants of us that we, we need to really struggle with and figure out. Uh, number one. And number two, that if we really want to um, absolutely uh, destroy the two-state solution. If we want to make like partition completely uh, uh, impossible logistically, it's not enough to just populate uh, you know as many mountains as we can uh, in the West Bank. Uh, we also have to find ways to ally with our Palestinian neighbors. And I actually think uh, just one of the things I found through uh, about 13 years of of doing this work is that the, um, the contradictions between the Jews living in Judea and Samaria and our Palestinian neighbors are actually much less 
than the contradictions between Palestinians and what we can call Zionist Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. meaning that we actually mm -hmm. have more in common culturally and in terms of values. And I think, uh, and I think that what we need to feel like winners in the story we're living in um, conflicts less with what Palestinians need to feel like winners in the story they're living in. And so tell us, let's get into it a little. Explain sure. what a one state, because when people hear one state solution, the last thing they think of is Palestinian reconciliation, which is what you started saying. You said we have right. to, we, cannot, we have to stop looking at the Palestinians as some sort of problem and that they maybe were, you know, destined, if you will, to be here and we need to figure something out. But then you go into the one state solution. Like, sure. what does that look like? What does the one state solution and how can a one state solution accommodate the Palestinians, uh, the desire and the will of the Palestinian people? All right. So first of all, when we started doing this work, this reconciliation work uh, about 13 years ago, we were often referred to as alternative peace activists. And I'm not really sure I like that term, mm -hmm. but, um, and, and people use it less these days, but I think the reason they used it at the time was three reasons. Number one, the fact that we're against the two-state solution and are not interested in involving the international community or you know European governments, Christian evangelicals, any outsiders in the work that we do. We're interested in only really um, empowering Jews and Palestinians, including diaspora Jews and diaspora right, between Palestinians. The, between the two parties, the two, directly right. between the two parties. Mm -hmm. right, right. So that was one reason we're alternative, because usually when people speak about the peace industry or peace organizations in Israel, um, they're talking about European-funded NGOs that are pushing a two-state solution. So we're not that, obviously. Uh, the second reason we're considered alternative is because we don't claim that peace can be achieved by bringing the quote-unquote uh, moderates together, like the westernized diplomats from Tel Aviv and Ramallah to sign an American piece of paper, uh, we believe that the only way to really achieve any kind of peace is to bring the quote-unquote extremists together, those who are mm -hmm. really living their people's stories on a deep level, uh, those who are willing to fight, kill, and die for what we believe to be important to our national stories, what we believe to be important to our people. Uh, we need to be the peacemakers. These are the Jews and Palestinians that need to be um, empowered to lead when it comes to peace. And the third reason we're considered alternative is because we don't believe that peace could ever be achieved by forcing either, either side to compromise on anything that's fundamentally important to us. The only way we could actually achieve what I would call peace um, or reconciliation would be where both sides, uh, for the most part, or at least those who are fully living uh, their side's story and aspirations, feel like winners in the story they're living in. So for us to do that, we have to really break down the core aspirations and grievances of both sides and the narratives we live in. And when I say narrative, I want to be very clear. You know, when I say narrative, I mean a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, uh, organized to tell a certain kind of story and contextualized within an ideological worldview. So I think when it comes to our conflict with the Palestinians, you know, over, I guess now we could say 102 years, um, there are millions of facts. And what we see is both sides really selecting the facts that support the story we want to tell and mm -hmm. kind of omitting or ignoring <clears throat> right. the facts that complicate right. that story. So I think we're so, both so, telling the truth so, about ourselves. Right. So we're getting it wrong all, about the other. Yeah, no, so I think that's very accurate. And that's what happens when two people are fighting each other. They, uh, right. You know, it's not like lying, but they choose the, uh, although I do feel right. that there has been some lying going on as well. Uh, but just to summarize, 
you're considered an alternative peace activist because you're against third party, third parties like the European Union or the United States. And I'm in complete agreement with that. You want a plan that's going to allow not just for the moderates, but even the extremists to work together. And number three, you don't want there to be a situation where either side has to compromise on their fundamental values. Tell us how the one state solution accomplishes this. So um, I would say that right now, Israel, uh, the Jewish character of Israel, Israel essentially functions as a European style nation state with Jewish decorations. Those Jewish decorations are way too Jewish for Palestinians and not Jewish enough for Haredim. Uh, and Haredim are important, by the way, because Haredim are the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. Uh, I'd say second place is a tie between Jews like me, the national religious and Palestinians. Um, so the country's changing. Also, when we speak about peace and, and different plans and processes, we have to think about the sociopolitical trajectory of the country, not just where it is right now. Right. Now, by the way, Haredim, for those of you listening, maybe unfamiliar, mm-hmm. are what I guess loosely defined as ultra-Orthodox Jews. Okay, continue, please, Rabdov. Yeah, so um, so I would say that um, you know when a nation achieves its independence, what it, especially a nation that's been oppressed and ruled by others for a, an extended period of time, they really need to enter what we call a post-colonial process. They need to have a post-colonial conversation. Um, and Israel, I'd say, call the Homer for those who know what a call the Homer is. You know, Israel even more so. Uh, would need this because we weren't just conquered and colonized in our own land. We were really, uh, you know, especially Ashkenazi Jews, we were thrown into the belly of the beast and we were thrown into the civilization that had destroyed us and spent roughly 2000 years being um, systematically oppressed in, in cycles by that civilization in various ways and places. Uh, So we are an extremely colonized people. And when we finally achieved our freedom in 1948, um, our material freedom, our material independence, we uh, we had no interest in engaging in this post-colonial conversation. Um, and I think that was a, a mistake. I think we're still suffering from that. I think Palestinians are, are suffering from that, uh, arguably even more, because they're kind of living under it. Uh, and I think that one of the things we need to do is have this post-colonial conversation, really talk about what it means. First of all, talk about what happened to us so we can heal, because a lot happened to us. And so much of our identity and so much of our worldview has been influenced by the trauma of 2,000 years of exile. And we need to really unpack that and heal from that if, if we're going to be able to get anywhere productive. But in addition to that, we need to ask ourselves, what makes a state Jewish? Uh, how does a nation state in the 21st century express the identity and values of the people of Israel? Um, you know, like I'll just give a small example, or maybe it's not so small. This is a Shemitah year in Israel, right? We're in the sabbatical year. And in the Shemitah year, we get into all sorts of discussions over what produce we buy and what produce we'll eat. But Shemitah is not just about produce. Shemitah also has a very strong socioeconomic component that's completely ignored. You know, we live in a country, or Israel is a country, where the majority of the population, you know, finishes the month in minus. The bank account is in the red. Um, Maybe once in every seven years, we should wipe out that minus. 
you know, mm -hmm. and actually relieve people's debts. Maybe that would be a real expression of a Jewish state or do or will banks charge interest or will, um, you know, or will uh, we sell weapons to human rights violators? I mean, these are all real questions about our values and our identity as expressed through a nation state. And, and I think part of the problem we've had up till now is when people think of Jewish state in this way, they're kind of thinking about like a Jewish Iran uh, where, um, where individuals are coerced by the state into halachic observance. And I don't think that was ever the vision. I don't think that was ever the point. I think, you know, for like, like for example, I think for a nation state to be um, Shomer Shabbat, the question of Shemitah's socioeconomic ramifications might actually be more central than what every individual Jew does in his home every seven days. Meaning but you clearly, that, but but Rav David, you clearly are interested. Review the. Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry. Sorry, Rabbi, no problem. <laughs> Rav David, I just talked to a friend of mine. David, um, Rabbi Huda, you're clearly interested, and I'm not saying I disagree. Uh -huh. I am an Orthodox uh -huh. rabbi, so I'm also interested in the Jewish state acting mm -hmm. Jewishly and yeah. following halacha. Mm -hmm. But that means that decisions will be made for people based on the Bible, the Torah. Right. And not necessarily, you know, democratic vote of what the majority of the country wants to be governed by necessarily. Well, well now, I'm not sure that's true either. And I want to get Again, back and I want to get right. back to the I want to get back to the one sure. state solution. But but sure. let's. Well, but well that's relevant. Meaning yeah. this question is relevant because the the more um, confidence we have in the in the Jewishness of our state, the less we're threatened by non-Jews being there. Mm -hmm. demographically even, mm -hmm. meaning, um, meaning I, I said before that our state is too Jewish for the Palestinians and not Jewish enough for the Haredim, mm -hmm. because the Jewish character of our state is very shallow, but very hard right now, very othering. Uh, I would like to see the Jewish character of our state be very deep, yet very soft. So um, anybody with a Jewish education would see the Jewishness in almost every policy and institution, including how we express ourselves democratically. I think we also have to define what a democratic state means because we haven't been. Um, and I think that any non-Jew or even Jews with less of a Jewish education should barely notice that the state is Jewish, should just kind of see it as a well-functioning, just society where they have full inclusion and equality. And, and how does, I, so, so let, let's, let's, if you don't mind yeah, sure. jumping in, because you use mm -hmm. those words deep and soft. In other words, you want yeah. a deeper... I right. want a deeper Jewish state, which represents mm -hmm. authentic Jewish values and not just paying mm -hmm. lip service, but actually following them. And mm -hmm. at the same time, you want it done in a way that's going to work for Palestinians. So how does that work exactly? Right. Well, in my experience, again, there are no Palestinians in the program now, so I can only really speak to my experiences engaging with them. So in my experience, what Palestinians really want or what they see as a just solution is a democratic one state where everyone is equal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, that's my experience with Palestinians. Uh, and I, I, I can agree with that. Um, but I think that the, the, what prevents many Israelis from being able to get on board with that is a fear of losing the Jewish state, right? Uh, and whatever that means to them. So I think that if we can take the time as a society to really just 
define what, what makes a state Jewish on a deep level. I'm not talking about the skin of the state. I'm talking about the organs and the skeleton of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the I depth, think the depth. Right. Like, like for example, we, you mentioned democracy before. I am a supporter of participatory democracy, which I think mm-hmm. is far more democratic than representative democracy, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, um, and we have models for this in our Torah and in our history, like the captains of 10, captains of hundreds, captains of thousands model. Uh, I think that for me, the way I would define democracy would be a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under, as long as I am able to influence the structures I live under uh, peacefully, I would experience myself having democratic rights. I think that's much more important to me than being able to vote in a popularity contest every four years. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think most Palestinians feel the same way. Um, and I, th- I think most people would feel the same way if given that option. And, and so I think that you know, shifting from a representative you know, democracy built around a British parliament, parliamentary model uh, to a participatory democracy um, would both be in, in strengthening the state's Jewish character and democratic character. And, and, what, and, 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 and if, if you mentioned before that, mm-hmm. the Palestinians with whom you've discussed and had these conversations, mm-hmm. they really mm-hmm. want equality. They want a democratic country where they will feel as equal as any Jew. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you have such a place and not compromise the Jewishness how are we getting our Palestinian neighbors to somehow buy in to our Jewish value right. system? So, so that, that comes down to the question that we have to ask ourselves. What is the ideal role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society? You know, mm-hmm. um, historically, you know, part of the problem, and this is, you know, the lack of the post-colonial conversation, in exile, there are two types of people. There are Jews and Gentiles. And in most cases, we experience the Gentiles as the enemy, as the oppressor. And that has, that has very much animated a lot of Israeli policies and a lot of Israeli positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying Palestinians are blameless. I'm not saying that, uh, that they haven't contributed to this conflict. They have. Um, but we have the upper hand. So I think building trust will really require us to make the first moves. And moving forward will really require us to make moves because we have the power. The power dynamics clearly favor us. Uh, not only does that mean we make the first moves towards building trust, I think we get to call the shots to a certain extent at the beginning of the process. And that's also important. Uh, but I think that um, we have to ask ourselves, what is what is what does a Gertoshav look like in the 21st century? Because when we've had power in just history, just explain, just explain that um, for our listeners what a Gertoshav is. What is the right of a non-Jewish resident of the land of Israel under Jewish sovereignty? Like, what does mm-hmm. that really look like in its ideal form? Uh, and and I'll just give you one example. You know, I meet plenty of women all the time named Yael, right? I don't know if you've met women named Yael. I'm sure you have. But Yael was a non-Jewish woman 3,000 years ago who lived in our country, was part of a population that was not Hebrew, but was allied to us, and became a hero of our history, became a hero of Jewish history, to the point that 3,000 years later, we're still naming our daughters Yael, meaning there is a dignified place for a non-Jew in a Jewish society, but we haven't figured out what that looks like because we're still um, dealing with this like Jew-Gentile Kind of dichotomy from the exile um and i think so we what, need to so realize what, so what would it look like if we can dispense with the right. Jew gentile right. di- uh you know divide which by the way i think is very accurate i unfortunately mm-hmm. I think well we even even in our very mm-hmm. kind of in america where we feel so accepted and you know and and loved 
I still think that outlook prevails. But so what would it look like? What kind of site are, are Palestinians living in this Jewish state inspired by authentic Jewish values? They can vote. And as much can... as we can, again, I, I, I spoke about shifting to a participatory democracy. So I don't want to I don't want to vote, meaning I'm talking about getting together every every week with my neighbors and discussing everything from road safety and education to foreign affairs and defense and sending one representative to a larger meeting, et cetera, et cetera, to to be able to directly influence the policies of the country on a weekly basis um, and to be able to recall my representative if he doesn't do what we had decided he should do in parliament or in the next group. And I would, of course, advocate for Palestinians to have that same democratic access. But I don't think just, you know, letting the politicians do what they want for four years and then going and voting uh, is real democratic power on any level. And how would you, thank you, and how would you deal with the current uh, aspiration of Palestinians for their own country, their own separate independent state. How do you tell 3 million Palestinians mm. that, listen, you happen to be in Israel, we're running the show, we're gonna create something new and different so you won't feel outside, you'll feel a part of it, but you gotta give up on your aspirations of having your own independence and your own sovereignty. Well, it hasn't been my experience that the nation state is really a core aspiration of any Palestinians. Um, in the, I think that was, they were told in the 1990s that they will achieve what is important to them through the vehicle of a European style nation state. But I, I don't think that's really as important to them, uh, in my experience, as living as an equal included member of the, the society that exists. And of course, we have to address refugee issues. I mean, that's important to them as well, because that's very central to their story at this point. But I think the idea of a state with a flag and a national anthem, you know, all that was kind of imposed on them uh, by the Western powers during the Oslo years. And, uh, and, I, and I think they realize, it for the most part, in many ways, I would say that Palestinian politics are much more advanced than Israeli politics. And I think they figured out a lot quicker that this is a really bad way to go. Yeah, but but so let's say for a minute we could some they they they, they lose that aspiration or they realize it was imposed upon them as you're suggesting. Well, they they have realized that that's already happened. That happened years ago. They know that they're past it. If you look at, uh, I mean, do you believe there are enough there are enough there are enough Palestinians who really would. Would, would be okay without their own state? I'm saying down yeah, the road, we're talking. I, I, again, it, it, first of all, I- would I like haven't, to, you've, you've done much right. more than I have. Yeah. So I don't know, I'm, I'm asking sincerely. Yeah. You've spoken with Right, yeah, so, so I, think, I, I think the assumption that Palestinians really want a nation state um, is really an assumption that, that is kind of transmitted to us through the media, especially Western media, but it's not really the Palestinian street. That hasn't been my experience you know, over the last 13 years. Uh, and that's good because the fact that they're not interested in political sovereignty or, or not focused on that being the goal, meaning that, that that's not something that they can't compromise on, that means there's much more room for reconciliation. Because I'll tell you the sure, truth, sure. if they wanted, if, if they insisted on having political sovereignty at our expense, at the expense of the Jewish people over part of the land of Israel, I wouldn't be done fighting. Meaning for me, there's no peace if the land of Israel isn't in Jewish hands. And, and and you don't think, I mean, just, and I really appreciate your honesty. You don't believe in a two-state solution. Why? Well, I'm a, 
what do you mean? But my people were, I would say not only me, I would say the majority of Jews living in the West Bank, you know, we're not a homogenous group. You know, a Jew from Efrat is very different from a Jew from Betel. A Jew from Alon Shrut mm-hmm. is not a Jew yeah. from Yitzar. There's a lot of diversity among Jews living in the West Bank. But I think the ideological common denominator is that we're an ancient people from this land that was unjustly displaced against our will. Uh, we struggled for thousands of years to come back, uh, and we did. I, I think it was even a miracle that we maintained our identity in exile for so many centuries. No other sure. ancient people that was destroyed succeeded in even doing that. But in addition to maintaining our identity, we actually came back to the land we had been displaced from. We revived our language. We took sovereignty from the British. We actually fought the British in a nine-year urban guerrilla war and won. You know, According to British documents, they left Palestine because of Jewish terrorism. That means we beat them. And uh, and now we experience the international community trying to displace us again through a two-state solution. So for us, it's more about resisting the partition of our land because it's unjust, because we struggled for so long and so hard to come back to our land. We're not going to let anybody displace us again. Um, and I was very pleased to learn over the years that uh, Palestinian aspirations, you know, are actually not uh, fundamentally at odds with ours. Meaning we are, to- again, before I, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I don't know if you remember me, we were actually on a trip together about 20 years ago, 21 years ago uh, with Israelite. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, yeah, I was real young. Yeah, uh, David Aaron, Benny Friedman, sure. I'm yeah, so that your friends. So that was uh, they're, they're teachers of mine, and um, and and that was really uh, uh, I, I was probably twenty one, a very uh, I, if if you do remember, you'd, you'd probably remember me as a very zealous young activist. Um, but uh, but I learned a lot over the years. Um, from my experience. You've, me- you've, you've you've mellowed out a lot. Uh, maybe I, mean, I, I might have mellowed out, or maybe my politics just expanded, uh, or right. maybe uh, Rabbi Aaron taught me enough Kabbalah that I just started to see the world, you know, from mm-hmm. a Different, higher vantage sure. point. Sure. Uh, and uh, the truth is, it, it actually was something that Rabbi Aaron taught me that allowed me to really hold the Palestinian narrative in addition to the Jewish narrative and not feel that they have to necessarily conflict. Uh, not that I, not that I'm sure he applies it that way, but I right. applied. Uh, it's actually a teaching of Rav Cook in Mamar Datalokim, uh, if you're interested. But um, mm-hmm. but the idea is basically that um, th- that at this point. Um, you know, we've we fought so hard to come back to our land. We're not willing to compromise on it. Um, but I've I, I've learned over the years that the Palestinian story is true and is and is painful. And acknowledging that pain, I think, is a big step in and of itself. I think most Jews, uh, pro-Israel Jews, most Israelis, uh, regardless of who they vote for, have a hard time really confronting the Palestinian story, and they have a hard time confronting our story. I would say one of the major obstacles to reconciliation right now is the principled resistance on both sides to really engaging with the story and identity and narrative of the other. We're afraid so, of it. So so here's the thing. I, I, yeah. I, this is very similar to Rudy, our good friend Rudy Rockman's right. outlook, who I just saw at the Israeli Day Parade yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, and by the way, I, I think it's very refreshing the mm-hmm. listening to each other's stories, acknowledging mm-hmm. the pain on both sides. These are things that have not been done properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree. The question is, again, how do you and I'm sorry to keep pressing because I'm okay. struggling with this. I, right. I've always been a two state solution just because I'm a pra- I'm a pragmatist. OK. And it's not that I want to see Israel split up. 
but I want to see Israel. I want to see Jews having their own country in Israel, mm -hmm. even if it can't be the whole place. It can be a lot, a big part of it. And I want to see peace. I want to mm -hmm. see peace between Jews and Arabs. So it seems on the surface, the only way to do that is to give each, like what the United Nations tried back in 47, mm -hmm. 48, to partition the land, give the Jews. Now, we were dancing in the streets of Tel Aviv the next day. No, we, we weren't. We weren't. Meaning, were. meaning the students of Rav Kook were not, and those who right. fought the British were not. Those Correct. who, but, those but who collaborated the with that, the British were. Right, but the reason that there were Jews dancing in the streets is because, mm -hmm. just from a very pragmatic perspective, the mm -hmm. like, okay, we can't get the ideal situation, mm -hmm. but we can, it's, it's not Uganda, it's Israel, mm -hmm. and we'll build something really beautiful here. And they had no idea what would happen 19 years later in 67, that we would triple the size of Israel through the Six-Day mm -hmm. War. Right. And and that was thrust on us. That's not something that the Zionists classically would have. I'm just playing devil's advocate for sure. for the two state solution, which is which makes a lot of logical sense, because it seems it hasn't worked, obviously, mm. but it seems like it would give the Palestinians what they want, the Jews what they want. And we can live Bashal and Bashalva right. separately and, and not, you know, what you're advocating. And I'm not talking about the morality or the ideology. I'm talking about practically. Mm -hmm. How do you get all of these mm -hmm. Palestinians to sort of buy in? Now, you're saying that you started answering it by saying that by getting the the um, by changing the nature of the Jewish state, we go from a parliamentary democracy to a what was the word you used? A, a direct democracy, participatory a direct, democracy, a participatory democracy where we could have greater influence on the leaders. Um, I'm still missing how. A, you get the Palestinians to agree right. to this, and B, once they mm. do agree to this, how do you keep the shalom? How do you mm. keep the peace between these two significantly different groups living mm. under one Jewish rule? Well, you, you've said a lot, um, so I'm not sure what to respond to first. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Do it all. I, okay, I think <laughs> any, anyone, who, anyone who really believes that a nation state um, in part of the country will address Palestinian grievances or aspirations has never really engaged with the Palestinian story. And, and I think that that's something uh, two-staters really have to confront. I think what you see, for example, in organizations like J Street U, the moment they meet enough Palestinians is they're out the door. They're no longer J Streeters because they realize that the two-state two paradigm is no longer a real solution. You said it, maybe it can't work. I would say, or it hasn't worked, you said. I, I would say it can't work and it shouldn't work because it's wrong. It's unjust. It's unjust for us and it's unjust for them. Um, uh, for you know, Again, I represent maybe a, a, a stream of Jewish thought that would not have accepted the partition in 1947 um, and would see that as a great betrayal and might have even thought that we should have continued to you know, go and take Judea and Samaria um, you know, after 48. Um, that being said, I, I think today it's not, it, I, I think the questions you're asking, I hear the question, you keep asking the same question, and it's an important one within a certain ideological paradigm that I might not be functioning within. And I don't think most Israelis or Palestinians in the West Bank are really functioning in that paradigm either. Um, I, I would say, first of all, if you want just, you know, mm -hmm. ideas, suggestions, for how we can get them to trust us. I think that's important. Because for me, by the way, peace, when we're talking about a one-state reality, uh, it only works if we, we are really 
connected to each other, if we really care about what's important to each other, meaning if we're just still scheming to defeat each other, but now we're living together in a democratic one state solution that's deeply Jewish, it doesn't help. It only, th- th- all this only works if we can fix our relationship. You know, I have a colleague in Bethlehem, uh, Sami Awad, who says that everybody wants to argue about the frame of the picture. You know, what solution will work? A two-state solution, a one-state solution. Uh, Mordechai Kedar has an eight-state solution. But we need to talk about the picture itself. What is our relationship? And I think, look, I'm not a politician. I'm I'm a very grassroots organizer and educator. And the work that I do is much less about the political solution that politicians will decide on and much more about the relationships between Jews and Palestinians in the West Bank who live next to each other uh, and can actually not be enemies in each other's stories anymore, can actually change the roles we play in each other's stories. Uh, And I think that's what it comes down to. It comes down to us being able to get to a point where we have a decent enough relationship that we can live together. Of course, I want a one-state solution, but I know no solution is possible right now. Not two states, not one state, not the status quo, not eight states, as long as the relationship is bad. Uh, the True. only thing we can 100%. do is fix the relationship. And, and one thing and one thing I've never the question heard... Is where, but the question is, where do we want to go? Let, let, I, mean, right. I want to go inc- to one state. I want to go to one state, including yeah. Gaza, you know, and, and quite frankly, I want Sinai back too. Okay, no, I hear you. It's all these, these are all legitimate, and when you put it in those terms, the two-state solution sounds awful <laughs> because it doesn't seem to take into account what both sides really want. Right. It's a compromise on both sides. It's more. But it's how, worse than that. It's an imperialist solution. It's a solution of the British and French, or today the Americans, destroying lines on maps and saying you go there, you go there, without actually thinking yeah, about I mean, the. I, that, that might, I mean, I would respectfully do. I. I I agree historically it was imposed upon us by the European powers, but today your typical two-state solution person just thinks, like I might, that I I can't think of a better solution that could accommodate as much of the aspirations of these two peoples. How do you, I don't even know what the word is, obviously if we respect and love each other and we're caring about each other's... But how do you get there? Well, even if we do get there, mm-hmm. um, Rabbi Huda, even if we do get there, how do you get Palestinians who do feel morally, even spiritually, from their perspective, whether it's a Muslim aspiration or not, that they should have their own governing rule and not be ruled over by their Jewish, who they like and are now convinced they have we have the best interests their best interests in mind. Right. I, I think you're still thinking about this kind of nation state structure as like even the words you're using like rule over as opposed to self-rule. I, I think, you know, the future that I'm talking about is not one where a Palestinian is experiencing himself as ruled over. Um, right now he's ruled over. Right now he has a military right. bureaucracy. So spell that out. Everything so, so spell that out a little. Right. What, what does it look like? I, I want to see the dream a little more clearly. The dream okay. is that the Palestinian living, let's not call it under Jewish rule. Maybe that isn't all good. (laughs) What, um, how is this Palestinian participating in society? How is he or she living side by side with their Jewish, you know, cousins um, in peace? In in your mind, how is this going? Well, as very similar to the Jerusalem today, I would say. Meaning, Mm -hmm. I would say that an allied population that sees themselves as strong and uh, dignified and sees us as strong and dignified. Look, I'm not I'm not naive. 
I think, you know, to have peace with anyone, you know, when I grew up in New York City, I grew up with some, you know, I grew up with some rough people. I didn't grow up so much inside the Jewish community. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have made peace with enemies. Even as a teenager, I made peace with enemies. And we were only able to make peace because we respected each other and maybe even feared each other enough to know we don't want beef. You know, you have to be a little bit scary for people to want peace with you. Your peace has to have value. Right. And and that, by the way, that was my initial. You asked me before, what what is the core opposition to a two state solution on my part? You know, I I can obviously, you know, speak about halakha. And and I think it's completely, you know, from my understanding of Torah, it's completely a halakhic problem to talk about giving up any land. Um, But even before that, you know, I think what initially made me so opposed to this when I was maybe 20 years old and first kind of became politically active was the very fact that Israel would be trading land for peace communicates that Israel's peace is not valuable. Meaning if we're the ones trading land for me, meaning if I offer you peace in exchange for your wallet or your shoes or your jacket or your computer, um, you'll only give those things to me because my piece is more valuable than your piece, right? I mean, if your know. piece I, is more valuable, then I'd be giving you my shoes and my wallet. I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Okay, you know, but that was my initial, that was, that, that was how I understood it at 20 years old. Coming from the background I came from, um, t- but today I'm, I'm coming from the perspective that Am Yisrael has a mission in history and we can only really fulfill our mission as a solid in our land, creating a society that could really inspire the rest of humanity. I think that that includes the socioeconomic level, minority rights, that includes healthcare systems, that includes how our soldiers behave in war, how our politicians behave. You know, I want Israel to be a real orlegoim. I want Israel to, to be... Light uh, means a, a light amongst the nations. Yeah. Right, but, but really, like I, I think that part of our problem and part of our... Um, p- part of our colonization and part of how anti-Semitism functions is we've been on the side of the oppressed, uh, of the oppressors, instead of the side of the oppressed. And I think that Israel didn't come back to life to be on the side of the oppressors. I think Israel needs to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed in the world today, um, including the Palestinians, even if we're if we've been playing a major role in their oppression, I think that's yeah. something to do tshuva yeah. for. Uh, I mean, but I, I, I will, I, I will. I just want to jump right in. Sure, sure. Something you said before, it's important for our listeners mm. just to know. You know, in the beginning of Oslo, there was a, a, a debate within the Orthodox community about mm. the prospect of of giving up land for peace. Now, I, most people today, because of everything that's happened, are pretty um, pretty cynical about the whole thing. That meaning that you know that most most people just in the Israeli camp, right and left, uh, certainly in the more centrist to the right, but even in the left, there is a sense that you know we tried that it doesn't really work. Um, I'm, again, being practical, Rav Salvechik was of the belief that it was permissible to give up land for peace if it could be demonstrated that Jewish lives could be saved. He famously said that you can give up the kotel. If it'll save Jewish lives, the land of Israel is a paramount importance in halacha and hashkafa. But saving a Jewish life is more important. He then he never advocated it. He said you got to ask the experts if you think it'll be effective. That's the mitziut of the shaila. That's the but whether it's permissible now. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was against that. The Rav Kook next for sure. Rav Kook was against it. 
and there's that divide. But there is another perspective on on um, on transferring land for peace. Again, I don't think it's so relevant anymore today because I think that you know to whatever degree that was engaged in did not prove terribly fruitful. Although with Jordan and with Egypt, with Jordan within Egypt, although they're called peace treaties, they are still treaties that have held out. Um, and that's different than the Palestinians, which is a group living within Israel as opposed to, you know, independent sovereign countries. So I just want to I just wanted to mention that. And that's one of the reasons why some people think that if you have a partner for peace that and you could sit down and negotiate and engage in some kind of that, maybe something positive could come out of it. I think it's time for a new paradigm. I'm open to the one state solution. I just want to know what that looks like. You tell it, you say the Druze, which is, that would be great. Druze seem to be an amazing population within Israel. They fight for the country. They have their own separate culture. How do you get, I mean, even if we were able to hear each other, really hear each other, like you're saying, can we get the Palestinians to where the Druze are today? I mean, do you believe that? If you do that, I, I want to hear that. because. Yeah. I, I do believe it. I, again, I think that I didn't believe it until I started actually engaging with Palestinians in a very real way. And I don't just mean a, a couple tokens here or there. I'm not talking about the Palestinians who make their money on like pro-Israel circuits. I'm talking about, you know, people, you know, people who've been in prison for political violence. I'm talking about clan leaders in Hebron. I'm talking about Marxist revolutionaries in the Ramallah area. I'm, I'm talking about people who are really, you know, living the Palestinian struggle. And, uh, and from their perspective, again, we have to understand the Jewish people are unique in history. You could look at Zionism and say this is an indigenous people's liberation movement. You could also look at Zionism and say this is a colonial project coming from Europe. Both have facts supporting them. Both arguments have real facts supporting them because we're unique in history. There's no other example of an ancient people that was broken and came back to life 2,000 years later using, I think one of the things we have to acknowledge about Zionism is it utilized not only European concepts of nationalism, but also colonialism as a methodology. Um, we have to be able to understand that Palestinians who don't know Jewish identity and, and who have a, today a psychological block to really understanding Jewish identity, um, all they saw were humans coming from Europe you, doing colonialism, you know, using colonialist methodology. And uh, so I think we have to clarify for them who we are. Um, I think we have to also educate ourselves to who they are. I don't see whether we want to win or make peace. I don't see any value in, uh, in engaging them as a fantasy antagonist. I think we have to understand them as they understand themselves and they would be wise to do the same in reverse. Um, and in terms of the steps, because I, 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 I think what you're really asking is like, what are the steps? Like, what can you do to make yeah, Palestinians yeah. experience you differently? Um, and, and by the way, if you don't yeah. mind commenting, mm. Rabbi Huda, what do you think we can do, Jews living in New York City, mm. Jews living in Israel? Because even if we don't subscribe to your ultimate goal of, let's say, a one step, I love the way you talk. I love the way Rudy looks at another human being in the eye and acknowledges the pain that they're going through and has a real conversation. I, I think only good could come from that as far as I'm concerned. So if you could throw into your answer here what you think our listeners could do mm. okay. you know, to, to engage, because there are Palestinians living in New York right. City, and well, whenever yes. there's a flare-up in the Gaza Strip, mm. you know, there's, you know we, got, we got a big problem, so it would be good if we could do something here too. 
Right. So the, the first thing I would, I would advise Jews living in the diaspora to do is to really go to visionmovement.org and sign up for the Atid online leadership program, which, mm -hmm. uh, where we do three things. It's a free program. We have one starting next week. Um, and um, it really aspires to three things. Number one, apply post-colonial tools to Jewish identity and Jewish history in a way that's never really been done before. I think that's really exciting and really crucial. The second thing is to try and understand uh, the Palestinian experience from their perspective, to really understand Palestinians, you know, from the lens of Palestinians. And the third is to learn to communicate Israel's story to audiences who are usually pretty hostile to Israel. Um, and to just understand how to share our, because our story is very unique. Our story doesn't fit into the boxes of what people are used to because Correct. we yeah. are such a unique people. And I think yeah. telling our story, sharing that story, whether it's with people in Black Lives Matter, whether it's people in the BDS movement, with the, the, the audiences that I think are worth engaging with are really those who are trying to change the world. Um, and I think those people are for the most part hostile to Israel today. People in this country, in the United States, and I'm, I'm, I'm still in New York for a couple hours, but so, so those who are, those in the United States, those people trying to actually uh, achieve political and social change to make the world better, hate Israel. That's our reality right now. And part of that, part of that might be our behavior a little bit. Part of it is also, we don't know how to tell our story. And yeah. I yeah. so part of what the Atid program does is it That's teaches great. young Jews to tell our story in a way that people could hear and not feel like they're throwing Palestinians under the bus, meaning to fully engage with the Jewish story in all of its fullness and with the things we say in the Amidah three times a day and with the things that Chazal, with our sages and our prophets wanted to see in the world um, without feeling like now they're betraying Palestinians. And how do you sign up for this? You go to vision.org and it's an online no, it, it, course? It's vision it's movement, vision, vision movement.org. Uh, okay, we have movement. a, mm -hmm. yeah. If you go down to programs, you'll see there's a live version and an online version. The live mm -hmm. version is really for gap year students in Jerusalem. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the online version, which we started at the beginning of COVID and realized there was such a, a thirst for this, uh, is really available to you know Jews between the ages of 19 and 36 all over the world. And uh, the, the idea of the program is to create leadership, to create not students of Herzl, but the next Herzl, meaning those who are able to really identify the objectives of Jewish history now. Um, and I think it's crucial that those people, even if they don't agree with me, that reconciliation with the Palestinians is an important goal for the Jewish people right now, they should at least know the Palestinian story fully and deeply. 100%. Uh, By the way, if you want to host any of that at MJE, it would be a great honor. Sure, we'd love um, to. Because, um, because, you know, our population of 20s and 30s are excited about Israel. We bring groups every summer and, uh, mm. and they, they want to do something and they want to be mm. part of something which is new and different and positive, mm -hmm. even if, and that's why I want everyone listening to this to know that, you know, Yehuda and I have been maybe discussing, maybe even arguing a little two state, one state, honestly, uh, taking a course like this, I don't think you have to decide between the two. I think the greater we engage the Palestinian people and understand their situation and learn tools to articulate, I mean, so many young people, Jews on college campus, we're getting clobbered on college campus because we do not know how to articulate our story. We do not know how to 
I mean, we're being basically called upon to justify our existence as, as this colonial power in, in our ancient homeland. And most American Jews are ill-equipped to do this. I'm assuming that this course can help to some degree with that. Sure. That's the, yeah. that's one of the major focuses. And again, there's no obligation to subscribe to my politics at the end of the course, <laughs> meaning the point is to create leadership and leadership means independent yeah. thinkers, uh, those who, who can see themselves as thought leaders of a new yeah. Jewish liberation movement. Um, and again, I, I, I urge people to do that. Um, but you know, once, once, a person is able to engage with Palestinians I, um, in a productive way, meaning I don't mean, you know, just arguing like yesterday I walked by the parade. I'm sure you were there. You said you were there. Um, and I, I happened to, to be on 59th Street and I saw the counter protest. And yeah. I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'll go speak to them because, you know, I'm, I, I'm usually pretty good at speaking to Palestinians yeah. and their supporters. But then I read, you know, the, the I don't think it's the right context for a real open yeah. conversation, first of yeah. all. But second of all, you know, I, I'm sure there are many people who marched in the parade yesterday. I, I'm sure there are many people who just want to go fight them. But I'm sure there are also many people, maybe even more people, who want to engage with them and hear them and, and, and explain to them what our story really is. And unfortunately, I, I think most most Jews, most pro-Israel Jews living in the diaspora are just not really equipped to have those conversations correct, for various reasons. And, and We're not. And I'll tell you something. The last time Rudy spoke at MG, which was just a few months ago, mm -hmm. um, a Palestinian, um, young man, Palestinian descent came mm -hmm. and it started, it started a little rough, mm -hmm. but you know, Rudy is uh, very well equipped to you know, and by the end of the night, there was like a real conversation going, mm -hmm. you know, we took each other's information and, there right. was a, you know, it starts with respect. And I just think we need more of that. And I think we also need more knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it doesn't, what I like about your message, Rebuta, is that it doesn't, it doesn't need to come at the expense of being proud of who you are mm -hmm. and demonstrating your authentic belief in Torah and mitzvot. That's what bothers. That's what's bothered me so much about the conversation. It's always like mm -hmm. the more we cover up who we are and the more we compromise and put aside our Judaism, the better we'll get along with. I mean, that's mm -hmm. been a losing proposition right. uh, for centuries. The, in the any, opposite in is true. Country. Like, I think especially with Palestinians, the opposite is true. I think that um, that's why I was so disappointed in Bezalel Smotrich for not sitting together with mm -hmm. Mansour Abbas, meaning the, the government Israel has now is, is really the result of a principled refusal on the part of the leader of the National Religious Party not to sit with the Muslim party. Uh, and I, had he done that, I think we could have really created different kinds of relationships. In many ways, I think that those Jews who are really deeply connected to Torah, deeply connected to our land, deeply connected to our people's story, need to steal the Palestinians away from those yeah. Israelis who are just trying to make the state of Israel an outpost of Western civilization, yeah. like a Rhodesia. But yeah. Now, I, are you proud? You know, I have a relationship with Michael Oren. He's a, I, mm -hmm. I consider him a great Jewish leader. I don't agree with everything he says and does. But he spoke to our group uh, a few years ago at the Knesset. And he was very proud of the fact that the Knesset, I don't even know if you're aware of this. I, I certainly wasn't. Um, that the Knesset has a mosque for the eight members of Israeli parliament that are Muslim so that they could come and pray. Now, that's not necessarily the... Estheological vision mm -hmm. of right. our prophets, 
of the Torah. Right. Okay. On the other hand, it's kind of something which a little much, a little goes along the lines of what you were saying before mm-hmm. about creating a country that that Palestinians don't feel they've denied and so compromised away their own values because they have mosques to pray in. I don't know. Right. It, it, yeah, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I hear what you're saying. In in my experience, most Palestinians aren't really driven by ideological Islam. That's not my experience. I know that's kind of the depiction in pro-Israel spaces yeah. of Palestinians. Yeah, it um, and it, it's cool that they have a mosque in the Knesset. I, I obviously have no problem with that. Um, but I would, fo- like, like, one thing that I think would be really productive if the government of Israel wanted to do something very small in uh, not even as a um, as a step as a precursor to a meaningful step, I would suggest Israel um, start paying Palestinian civil servants. Right now, we don't. The Palestinian Authority does, like like bus drivers in Bethlehem or teachers right. in Janine. Right. Like we should start paying because it's our country again. Like like yeah. we're responsible. We should pay Palestinian civil servants the same salary we pay Israelis in that same job which is roughly four times what they're making now, meaning right now, uh, oh, really? uh, yeah, an, an Israeli bus driver, an Israeli police officer, an Israeli hospital worker is making roughly four times what their Palestinian counterpart is making under the Palestinian mm-hmm. Authority. Um, what gives the Palestinian Authority so much power is the fact that so much of the Palestinian economy are civil servants. Um, I think if Israel were to start unilaterally just paying civil servant salaries in the PA, um, alongside their paycheck, meaning they would get an Israeli check and a paycheck. One would be 25% of the other. Uh, and after six months of this, that, and by the way, small steps like that, I think, again, it's a precursor. It's yeah. not the, yeah. it's not the yeah. game changer. But I think we need to think about how they experience us in the story they're living in and how we could change that for the better. And I think that would at least whet the appetite on the other side. I think that would maybe create a lot of confusion on the other side. Um, but ultimately, I think we're going to need to focus on the real structures that they experience as oppressive. And it means we have to confront some of our past. We have to really acknowledge that Zionism, even though it succeeded in, in bringing us back to life and bringing us back to our land, and, and all that is just because it's something we've been struggling to do for thousands of years. There were many Jewish liberation movements before Zionism. They just all failed, so we don't talk about them. But Zionism succeeded. Um, but we also have to address that Zionism had flaws and used a lot of colonial methodology. And, and the state of Israel has a lot of colonialist structures today that need to be dismantled. Um, but for us to be able to do that, we need to feel safe. Uh, so there's a lot of chicken egg here. But I think um, the, the real con- we, we can't move forward without real difficult conversations. And, mm. uh, and, and that's really at the end of the day we're going on. Would you uh, I know you're against the current structure and therefore maybe cynical or hesitant to participate in it, but would you ever run for office? Would you I, ever try to develop a party within the Knesset? Um, I worked in in party politics for a long time. I worked for three members of Knesset, people who mm-hmm. I like very much and have tremendous respect for, but I acknowledge that the just working for them, I, I saw firsthand how dirty um, the Knesset mm-hmm. is. Unfortunately, the political culture of Israel today, I don't know if it was always like this, but the political culture of Israel today is a very dirty political culture. Um, and I think that need, I, I think just going into that system um, 
isn't enough. I think we need to really try to, um, I, I don't think it's a system that can be reformed from the inside at this point. Mm-hmm. I think that people need to really mm-hmm. demand change and, uh, and there might need to wanna, be. You don't want to clean up the swamp like uh, President Trump used that. Language. I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I think that we have really, I, I think, first of all, I'm a teacher. I'm not a politician. But that's one thing I learned about myself at a certain point, that I'm really an educator more than anything else. I love education. I love teaching. Um, that, that's really where I experience myself as a That's really where I experience myself as a unique spark of Hashem acting in this world as a teacher. Uh, I wouldn't want to give that up. Um, I'm be more than happy for my students, including Rudy, to uh, to go to Knesset and create a party, and I'd be happy to help them and advise them, um, assuming they do it right and you know nobody sells out along the way. So, uh, but but the, but the Knesset right now is unfortunately a very uh, a, a very problematic uh, political culture. Uh, now, also, it, it, part of it is that it doesn't fit us, meaning we're still ba- basically the Lehi beat the British, the British left. And then the Zionists came and put a Jewish flag over a British colonial system. And it doesn't really fit our identity. India has the same problem, by the way. They have tremendous political instability in India because they're still functioning with a British colonial system uh, that doesn't really fit their culture. So I think that I, I think the first step for us really moving forward on our side, and, and I hate to say Palestinians have to wait for this because they've been told already for decades that they have to wait for us to get our act together on our side. But the truth is we're not going to be ready to engage them properly until we undergo a real post-colonial process. We need to go through a real healing right. process because unfortunately, and, and it's not easy to say, I don't think the majority of Israeli society is ready for real reconciliation. Um, I, I just don't think we're there yet. I'd like to get there. Um, I don't think it's our well, fault. I think I think well, we have certainly, tremendous we're trauma. Cer- we're, we're certainly not going to... We're certainly not going to be able to get anywhere with the current Palestinian leadership or people if we don't talk to each other more. And things are right. broken down so badly. And the reason I'm interested in what you have to say and Rudy is because you guys seem to be the only ones really interested in talking. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not saying that Israeli politicians don't want to, but to really listen to the other side and to try to come up. I'm still, I have to tell you, I, I'm still struggling with how this thing would would look and would unfold and how you could really have, but I hear it. I hear it. And I hear the problems with the two state solution, obviously. And I wish you a tremendous Muslim bracha. Just know that um, I'm not telling you what to do. And I'm also a teacher and that's where I find my Sipuk Nefesh also my satisfaction of the soul. But um, you want to make a difference. I'm not going into politics, but you, you have spent a lot of time talking to Palestinians. You have a unique perspective on what you think could accommodate both groups. Mm. I don't think most Israeli politicians have spent a lot of time talking to the Palestinian counterparts, maybe leaders. But I agree with what you said before. The leaders are, I mean, I don't know if you said this, but the leaders, the leaders don't, you know, I don't think uh, there's such a gap between the leadership and the, and the actual people on the street. Sure. You know, which is why you can have leaders sitting down with Israelis and you can still have you know, anti-Semitism in, uh, in, in textbooks being taught still in, in, in Palestinian schools uh, and both people, happening at the same time. People are being very pragmatic, as you said, okay. you know, especially <laughs> Mahmoud Abbas. Okay. But look, I, I'm optimistic for the future. I think we're headed in a good direction. I think, uh, you know, I'm not a student of Rav Soloveitchik, as you've 
probably realized already, I'm a student of Rav Kook. I'm very much coming into this as a, as a student of not only Rav Kook, the Maharal of Prague, the Ramchal, the Gona Vilna, the Rabbi Yudha Levi, the Ramban, uh, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I'm, I'm coming into this with a specific understanding of Jewish history, Jewish purpose in history, uh, a, a Jewish mission that we have the ability to actually achieve now more than ever before. Uh, well, don't 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 misunderstand the Rav Salvechik. He, you know, he left the Aguda over this issue and joined the Mizrahi group because he saw the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and he saw what happened in Muhammad Shachror as Yad Hashem. He studied his work. He had a he had a particular machloket with the Rav Kupniks over the land for peace, you know, it, which is more of a uh, a specific halachic issue. I don't think, you know. I, he didn't speak about right. Zionism in messianic terms like Rav Cook did, right. but well, he well, definitely saw it as some expression of God's. God's so hand. I, 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 that's true, and and I I concede that. I guess where I see, I guess in my experience having this conversation with people from the Rav Soloveitchik world, uh, and I appreciate a lot of things about that world. I'm not trying to to attack that world, Chas Shalom, but mm-hmm. but I think. The, the problem that I've identified that I think is not just the Rav Soloveitchik problem, I think it's a Haredi problem too, um, is the context. The, um, you know, when, when we, Jewish education, in my opinion, should really begin with what is the mission of the Jewish people in history. And I've often had this, you know, when we would debate issues like Land for Peace, when I've had that uh, disagreement with students of Rav Soloveitchik or students of Rav Lichtenstein, um, and, you know, a couple times I would try this experiment saying, well, let me ask you a question. What's the mission of the Jewish people in history? And, and this is such a central idea in not only in Rav Cook's Torah, but really in all of the Gdolim I mentioned over the centuries. Um, and I would get blank stares. It's just so peripheral to the core curriculum of what people are taught in, in so much of the Jewish education that exists right now, you know, and, and I'd get answers like, you know, to do mitzvot, like to be religious, like that's the goal of Jewish history. Uh, and I don't think that's true. I, I, I know that's not true because I've, I've well, seen I the think, Mikorot. I think, yeah, I think, I mean, this is a, this is for another podcast, actually, this would be a really great, because I think there's a historical purpose and mission to the Jewish people, and there's a metaphysical, spiritual mission to the Jewish people, keeping mitzvot and bringing Hashem, you know, you quoted the Tanya before, Nefesh that is our goal and our purpose in this world, to bring God where God isn't. But that's true. If you if you were to talk about a, a particular historical, right, you know, um, I, I think that's a different question. I think I, and I think if I think the Rav Aaron Lichtenstein of Salvatrix would have an answer to that too. But I, I, but I would I, assume I, they would. But but a lot yeah. of but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't at the center of the yeshiva that's education true. that yeah. was being I given. I think by that's them. very. I think Whereas in the Rav Cook world, that is the center. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate distinction. Yeah, and of course, I, I, where the I, state I, of Israel fits in. Right, right, and listen, the difference is also, and this is an interesting thing that. You know, I'm like a poster child for YU Yeshiva University. My father went there. I went there with my kids. But when we go for our gap year in Israel, mm-hmm. our influences are more the Rav Kukniks, mm-hmm. not the Rav Salvatrics. Because in Israel, the predominant, I think, hashkaf or outlook, ideological outlook on Israel, religious Zionism is more influenced by Rav Kuk. 
because he was in Israel. The Rav stayed in the United States in the diaspora. So even though Wayu's put out thousands of mismachim over the years, I think the the hashkafa within the modern modern Orthodox community, we say that's not a Rav Salvechik idea. No. Uh, the beginning. No, that's a Rav Cook idea. That's mm-hmm. a messianic. I just taught a whole thing on this. And that's a more messianic kind of thing. And, and, and you know, invoking Bar Kokhva and Rav Yekiva, thinking he was the Mashiach and all that. That's very much aligned in all that. I, I hear that. But it's interesting. You should just know that I think most of the modern Orthodox, um, you know, next generation have a little more of the Israeli mm-hmm. Rav Cook view than the Rav, just because that's where we're getting that dose from mm-hmm. in our gap years. And listen, most of my chaver made aliyah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, most of my friends who I went to Y with live in Israel. Israel Hashem mm-hmm. will all be there. But but it's um, I'm just saying it's an interesting sociological. Yeah. Uh, right. So we, I, I don't, we, we should. I, yeah. At some point, we should this. sit down and have a proper conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yeah. uh, on the podcast. <laughs> and next time you bring a group to Israel, uh, feel free to come visit us on our mountain, or oh, or you. we could even thank set you. up. Maybe we could set up a panel with some Palestinian and Jewish uh, activists Ooh. talking to your group. That would be great. And I, I meant that offer about uh, MGE hosting, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the, um, what, it's a conference, right? I mean, it's, or it's a, it's we a do course. all sorts of things. I, well, the core, right. we, we do, we can do events in New York. We're I just, I, I just want to promote anything that mm-hmm. gets people to sit down and talk to each other. And you guys are doing that. So yeah. to you and mm-hmm. to just building the land and the Jewish presence in Israel, which you've dedicated your mm-hmm. life to. So I, I, I thank you for that, and I thank you for your time. You're you're articulate and passionate, and I really respect everything you're doing. So please, please, likewise. Uh, let's 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 continue this conversation. And thank you so much for your time. I wish you a safe trip back to uh, home to Israel. Yeah. And um, you should just be my slave. Amen. Amen. Gamlecha.